Okay, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. My name is Levi. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, typically, if you're relatively new here, you'd, you would not know this, um, but I'm usually over here uh, leading us in worship and song. Um, it's kind of my, my classic role here on Sunday mornings, but uh, this Sunday, um, here, over here in the pulpit today, and just, uh, just happy to be able to serve in this way as well. Um, and thankful that we have uh, guys like Dana who can just step up and, and lead worship uh, in a pinch like that and, and kind of bring it together. So thank you, Dana, for serving us. Thank you, worship team, for, for serving us. Um, today we are going to be starting a new series, and uh, I don't preach real often, so when we say we're going to start a new series, it's going to be like every few weeks we're going to hit this topic again. So this series will um, be kind of going over the next several months as I come up to preach. And the series is just simply called The Empowered Church, and it's going to be a series about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, not to say we don't talk about the Holy Spirit in other sermons, but this is specifically thinking over the next several sermons that I preach about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and how it works itself out here in our lives, how it works itself out here in the church. And there are a few reasons that um, we've decided that a, a series on the Holy Spirit would be a good idea. It wasn't just me sitting by myself thinking about it. There's the other elders, and we've been talking about it, and um, lots of reasons, actually, that I could list that we would maybe take some time and talk about the Holy Spirit for a while. I just want to name a couple this morning to kind of give you a sense of where we're going, um, and I might just trickle a few more in over the next several sermons that I preach. But a couple reasons that we might spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit together. One is just ignorance. <laughs> we just don't know the Holy Spirit very well. We don't know what we even think about the Holy Spirit real well. One student said it like this to his professor. He said, God the Father makes perfectly good sense to me, and God the Son I can quite understand, but the Holy Spirit is a gray, oblong blur. <laughs> and I love that description. The, the color is uh, vague, the shape is not distinct, and it actually kind of appears to be out of focus a little bit. And that kind of describes maybe a little bit of what we think about the Holy Spirit. We're not quite sure what it is we believe. We have some ideas, but it sure would be nice to kind of get that a little more concrete. So one is just ignorance. Another, and this is a little bit closer to my heart in terms of just pastorally thinking here, is just that we are constantly in need of spiritual renewal. We, we just need spiritual renewal in our lives all the time. And... And I'm not saying that I think that we are a, a bunch of dry, mean, stuffy old Christians here in this room. In fact, I know a lot of you quite well. And I would say, no, I see fruits of the Spirit all over. And I just see God's grace and work all over and, and feel the love that we have in our church. But the fact of the matter is that we do get into patterns of life where being in the church— Walking with Jesus is more of a ritual than it is a relationship sometimes. We get weary of the race. We lessen our expectations that God's really going to do anything out of the ordinary, in me or through me. This kind of starts to happen slowly and, and, and gradually, and we don't even really realize it's happening in the time. I was reminded about a month or so ago of a, 
a line from the movie Alice in Wonderland. I don't know which one it was necessarily, but this line in Alice in Wonderland where Alice is back in Wonderland and she's trying to remember who she used to be here in this place. And she's having this conversation with the Mad Hatter. And if you remember the Mad Hatter, he's insane. He's relatively insane. And so um, they're having this conversation and, and Alice needs to go do something. And the Mad Hatter is telling her, you can do this. This is what you were born for. This is, what you're, this is why you're here, Alice. And, and Alice is just full of anxiety and she's full of fear, saying, I can't do it. It's impossible for me. And the Mad Hatter turns to her and says, you're not the same as before. You were much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. And I love the vagueness of that word muchness. You've lost it. And I think sometimes we kind of lose some of our muchness over time. And maybe many of us, maybe just some of us here, lose that sense that, that God is actively working. And, he, and he's not done working. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, he's not done working. So we have to fight cynicism. We have to fight doubt. We have to fight lots of different things in our lives. And, and we constantly need spiritual renewal. Maybe on the rare occasion when we do dream of something great that God might want to do in us or through us, something that hasn't been done before, we maybe chalk it up to the days of our youth when we had more energy, we're a little more naive, a little more optimistic. Now we've been weathered a little bit and and we're not quite so hopeful anymore. And I would just say, man, I don't think that's the Spirit leading us into those kinds of thoughts. And so we, we do have to fight against it. Fear, anxiety, worry... Money, time, schedules can sometimes squeeze the part of our lives where we dream about what Jesus could do and what the Spirit might be doing in us and through us. So I want to kind of stir that up. Maybe, maybe the Spirit kind of stir that up in us as we, as we go through the Holy Spirit series. Not that you can control spiritual renewal, but we certainly can um, ask for it. And we can seek the Holy Spirit for that in our lives because we just always need it. So today, with the remainder of our time, I, I did have to give a little bit of an introduction there to the series, but the remainder of our time, we're going we're gonna to turn to John chapter 16 and just kind of um, get a glimpse. The Spirit has not come yet in John chapter 16, but He is coming. And so that's where we're going to go today. You can turn your Bible on or, or flip open to uh, John chapter 16. And that's where we're going to start this morning. All right, well, let's pray before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do desperately need you today. We recognize that um, you are here with us. You are speaking to us. You're an active God. You're not a passive observer. Um, you lead us into truth. Um, and we need, we need to hear from you, Lord. And so I just pray that today, that as we look at John chapter 16, I can't deliver this flawlessly. I, I, I can't, can't, uh, can't make your spirit do anything, God. But would you please, would you please empower your word and activate our hearts, God, and stir us up in the ways that you want to stir us up this morning, that we might be um, moved toward you, Lord, in our hearts, and we might be soft 
So we, uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as a parent, one of the funny things you get to do with your young kids, or even if you're not a parent, maybe you've encountered young children with this topic, it's trying to teach the concept of time to a child. A, a young child, two or three years old, like time. What is time? It's not concrete. What is that thing? I remember one of the first few times me and Ashley left our boys for like more than a night, like two or three nights. I can't remember exactly how many. And, and we got Liam here, and Liam's like three years old or something like that. He's back here and saying like, okay, we won't be home. You're going to sleep at Grandma and Grandpa's tonight. And then we won't be there the next day. You'll sleep another night. And then you'll have a nap in there somewhere too. So you're going to sleep probably five times before, six times maybe before you see us again. And just like this blank stare, like... And, and at that moment, you just kind of realize, all right, well, good talk. We tried. I, I love you. I'll see you in three days, you know. And you, and you, and you move along, and, and that's kind of what goodbye looks like early on. Well, the, what, we're, what we're at here in John chapter 16 is a, a long goodbye. It's, a, it's called the farewell discourse, and it's Jesus saying, he's saying goodbye to his disciples. He's trying to explain exactly what's going on to the, what Jesus is leaving, and he's trying to explain to them, why this has to happen. This is going to happen. And the disciples are, are sort of like a, a child who can't really understand this. Why? Why, why are you leaving? What, what's, what's going to happen? And so we're entering this scene here where Jesus is explaining his coming departure. And you think about it. After, just like that, after three years of spending all this time with these disciples, changing their lives, changing what they've ever thought is possible, he's, he's now going to leave. They've got to be confused. They've got to be a little bit fearful. They've got to be wondering, what, what's going on? You're the greatest leader this world's ever seen. How, how could it possibly be that you would leave now? And ringing in their minds had to be the question of what becomes of the work that you started. It isn't done yet. We just started all this stuff that you've been doing. And we still haven't accomplished anything. Why would you start saying goodbye to us? Jesus is acting kind of funny. He's already acted funny earlier on by washing the disciples' feet and explaining that this is, what, this, is, this is what he wants them to do for each other. Seems like Judas saw the writing on the wall. Jesus is not going to really amount to much at the end of the day. He sees some stuff. He sees the washing. He gets the sense of where things are going. And while we're reading these verses, Judas is off betraying Jesus right now. So, so there's something going on here. And the disciples are, they need something, they need some hope. Jesus, what are you saying? What's really going to happen here? What becomes of the work that you started? Is it all for nothing? Give us some hope here. We need some hope. So that's where we are in these verses. And here's the words of hope that Jesus has for them. Looking at chapter 16 of John, verse 4. And we'll start kind of halfway through verse 4 there. Jesus is saying, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask where you are going, or where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
Here's some words of hope. The best is yet to come, Jesus is saying. The best is to your advantage. The best is still yet to come. When he starts talking about the Spirit coming, what Jesus is doing is he is— it might seem kind of weird to us because at least on the outside, from our perspective looking in, how could it be to their advantage that Jesus would leave? This is the guy who, who walks on water, who turns water into wine, who, who breaks a few pieces of bread and a few fish and, and feeds 5,000 people just like that. How could it possibly be to our advantage that you would leave? But to the disciples, when he starts talking about the Spirit— they, they do pick up on what he's saying here a little bit. They might not know fully, but, but Jesus is grabbing a whole bunch of Old Testament prophetic texts that promised a time, that there'd be a time coming when his spirit would be poured out on his people in a way they had never known before. It was, it was a time when Israel um, would, be, would, would see the, the promises of God really fulfilled. And they were looking forward to it. There's lots of texts I could grab this morning. I just picked Ezekiel 36, if you want to put that on the screen. This would have been one of the texts that speaks to this spirit coming. Ezekiel 36, 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring into your land, and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was a hope-filled verse. This was a, a well-known passage to many Israelites looking, looking for that day, longing for that day when it would come. So when Jesus starts talking about the Spirit coming, he's talking about this age that they've been waiting for and praying for and wanting forever. <clears throat> but none of this would happen until Jesus went away. He had to leave first. And that went away is not just simply going back to the Father. I mean, he had to, he, that's in mind for sure, because he's going to go to the Father and he's going to send the Spirit. But that went away also, when he talks about, I need to go away, also refers to what's coming here in the next few pages in our Bible. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be arrested by the authorities. He's going to be put on trial. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to die. He's going to go away. He's going to be put in a tomb. And then he will be raised again. But this going away, this is this whole redemptive act that has yet to happen. It has to happen. It's to their advantage that it happens because atonement still needs to take place. This is how Ezekiel 36, when he talks about sprinkling clean water on the people, this hasn't happened yet. Jesus is the clean water. He, he, he cleanses our conscience. He takes upon himself all the wrath of the Father for my sin, for your sin, for the disciples' sins. It's to their advantage that he goes away. He has to go away. So that is definitely in view here, but it is also to their advantage that he would go back to the Father, that he would leave then and send the Spirit. They don't know how it all works itself out. We know more now, I think, than the disciples did at this point. But there are tons of advantages to the Spirit being in us now, in God's people. We saw in Ezekiel 36, the indwelling Spirit 
empowers God's people to actually live obedient lives. Empowers us in a way that wasn't, didn't, didn't exist before. There's an empowerment to actually live a life that's pleasing to God now that we never had. The Holy Spirit empowers our mission. We don't go out there in our own effort trying to, trying to glorify God in the world. God, actually, the Spirit empowers our mission. The Spirit gives a variety of gifts to the church. These are things we'll hit on throughout this series, but the, the Spirit gives a variety of gifts to the church, brings spiritual renewal, brings understanding, comforts us, leads us in our prayers, constantly calling us to worship Jesus, unifies the church, and, he, and the Spirit does this all over the world, all at the same time. It is to the advantage of the church that Jesus would go away. And all those things are every bit as powerful as Jesus walking on water or multiplying bread. It's all just, it's the same power in, both of the, in all of that stuff at the same time. We are not at a disadvantage. Sometimes we can think this, but we're not at a disadvantage because we've never seen Jesus with our physical eyes. We really aren't. Lots of people saw Jesus with their physical eyes. They saw him do amazing things and still didn't believe. It is ultimately a work of the Spirit that we would, we would hear of Jesus and our eyes would be open and we would see him for who he really is. John Piper says it this way in his sort of provocative style that he, that he has. He says, the Gospels are better than being there. In other words, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, along with the Spirit, is better than even being there. What we have now is, are the words of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, tons of time to reflect on what these things mean. So when you open up your Bible, it's even better than being there. You can agree or disagree. He's not really saying anything authoritative, but I like the statement. I think it, it resonates in my heart to not think that because I never saw Jesus, I'm at a disadvantage. You're not. The Spirit is here. It's been given. It's always been a spiritual thing to have your eyes opened up to see Jesus for who he really is. So, the best is yet to come. But the disciples still have this question of who carries on the work? How does the work continue, Jesus? You've just gotten started. A house isn't a house if it's only half built. It's got to, you know, at least not Minnesota. It's going to get cold. The house has to get finished for it to really be a house. Who's going to finish this work? So we'll continue on here in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, judgment, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Who continues the work of Jesus? The Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus. John is emphasizing when, when he calls the Spirit the helper, or maybe if you have an NIV here, it says the advocate. It's a word that is kind of hard to translate in English. But John calls him the helper, and back a, a couple chapters in chapter 14, he actually calls him another helper. Another helper, this Holy Spirit, which begs the question, well, then who's the first helper? If there's another helper coming, well, Jesus is the first helper. He's calling himself, kind of associating himself as the helper. And another one is coming. And what he's stressing here is the continuing work. 
There's, a, there's another one coming to help do the same stuff that I'm doing. And in John's gospel, it's not disguised what Jesus is doing. John is never cryptic about Jesus' identity, whereas the other gospels, sometimes there's a little bit of a secrecy to it, and who is Jesus really? And they invite you in to read the gospel of Matthew, Mark, or especially Mark, and, and kind of investigate who is this Jesus. John can't keep a secret, you know? I mean, he just has something to say, and right out, right, it flies off the pages. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes even further and just says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The deity of Jesus is right in the center of John's gospel. He is front and center with it. No hiding it. No gradually warming up to this idea. The light of the world has come and it shines into the darkness exposing the sin of mankind. And the question is, what are you going to do about this Jesus? Here he is. Spirit is pointing to Jesus. So how does the Spirit continue that same work? Well, it's that word convict. Verse 8. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Conviction is a, a gracious work, although it's a hard thing to accept or receive. The Spirit graciously exposes sin for what it is. Shines darkness into, or shines light into the dark parts of our hearts. That sense that we feel guilty about something, that's a, that's a work of the Spirit, working that out in us. It's a good thing, and the humble in heart receive that and repent. But if you're proud, you rise up in your own pride and say, I don't believe it. I don't believe Jesus is really God. I don't believe any of this stuff. And so the convicting work of the Spirit is continuing to happen the same way it was happening with Jesus. Concerning righteousness is kind of a funny word, you know, after sin. Concerning sin and then concerning righteousness in verse 8 there. But that's, that's really just a false, empty righteousness that Jesus has been encountering all through the Gospel of John. It's the Pharisees, it's the religious leaders, it's this polished up exterior that looks really good. Everyone respects it, everyone, everyone acknowledges it, but deep down in the heart there's no love for God, no real change. Jesus is calling them on that and, that, and their heart was exposed eventually in that they actually just killed Jesus. There's no real righteousness there if you're killing Jesus. Concerning judgment, the Spirit is convicting concerning judgment just has to do with the world's wrong judgment it finally made. End of, end of the book of John, what do they do? They crucify him. Wrong judgment. <laughs> and the Spirit is convicting the world of that wrong judgment even now. John 3, chapter 19, or chap- chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the Spirit is continuing this convicting work in, the wor- in this world. It's an invisible work. But I just want to like stop for a second and think about this for, just for a moment here. We haven't been given the task of conviction. <laughs> like that's not our job to make sure people feel convicted in this world of who Jesus is, of their sin, of their self-righteousness, of anything like that. That's not really our job. Not ultimately. We can't control that. When we do try to control it, usually it's just 
through manipulation of some sort or, or through maybe even just a spiritual abuse of some sort, just kind of like ramming home. You've got to feel guilty for this, but you can't make someone feel guilty. You just can't. It's the Spirit's work, and I think sometimes we step past our boundaries a little bit, thinking, especially if we really care about the person, right? Like, I just want you to get this. It's a spiritual work, and we've got to recognize our limits, and we have to recognize our role. We have limits, but we do have a role. The Spirit isn't doing that just on His own. I mean, the Spirit can do that, and I think that's very possible that that happens uh, anywhere in the world, I suppose. But, but really what we see in the New Testament is that the Spirit carries this convicting work through God's people. So what is our role? What do we do? And here I want to stick to John with the answer to that question. Because I could say, well, there's evangelism, there's mission in your life group. There's a lot of ways that the Spirit will, will carry out that convicting role through the church. But I want to kind of stick to John here because John says something pretty interesting and I think um, pretty helpful here. If you go back to John chapter 13, just go back a couple pages there. And John says, <clears throat> let's see here. He says, chapter 13, verse 34, So we're close to our context here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So drive it home, he says it again in chapter 15. Then down the road in 1 John, another book, but same author, again, John's calling attention to this command to love one another. And with it being so closely connected to our context, I just think there's something about this, that this is our role in this world, is that we love. The quality of our love is seen in two words here. Because love is a kind of a fluffy word, I think, in our culture. We don't even know what it means half the time and get it wrong. But Jesus qualifies the love. He says two words— as I love as I have loved you. This is a laying down your life for one another kind of love. It's not contingent, no strings attached. It's not me-centered. It's not easy, necessarily. It's full of sacrifice. But that's what he's calling us to. It's, it's an impossible love, honestly, without the Holy Spirit. We, we couldn't really do that. But Jesus is calling us to that, and it is possible with the Holy Spirit. In verse 35, he says, By this, I think he's pretty explicit, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the watching world can see your life, whether it's our love that we have for each other here in the church, or whether it's just loving your neighbor across the street. I think, I think we don't want to limit that too much. Definitely we want to love each other well here, but that's not limited here. It's, it's, it goes out all over. But Jesus is inviting the watching world to see how do these people love. And if we're loving like Jesus, then they're, they're getting a glimpse of Jesus. They're, getting, they're, they're seeing him, not perfectly, but they're getting a glimpse of Jesus in some way. And Jesus says, now they can make the call. And I think somehow through that, the Spirit brings his convicting presence into a, a person's conscience in some way to say, 
something's wrong with my life. Like, I don't love like that. I don't know what's going on there, but there's something real. Or they can say, that's nice that they do that, that they're like that. I'm going to go along on my way. I think the Spirit moves through genuine love to convict a world of sin, of righteousness, of the wrong judgment about Jesus. And I think this, this frees us up in a lot of ways, doesn't it? You don't have to go berate people with the gospel. Just love people really, really, really well. Doesn't mean you're not speaking of Jesus. Doesn't mean you're not sharing the gospel. Doesn't mean that stuff's not, the conversations aren't happening. They should be happening. But it's just so smashed in together. It's inseparable from actively loving people. Giving yourself to people. Of, to people. Um, Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a book, a real small book called The Mark of a Christian. And I read it a few weeks ago. And, uh, and, and he, in that book, he's basically reflecting on these verses of the new commandment that Jesus gives us. And um, at some point in the book, he lists a bunch of ways that followers of Jesus love differently. Like some distinctive marks about, about Christians and the way we love one another, the way we love the world. L- love the world in the sense of people. <laughs> um, he, he has a long list. I just want to mention a few to give us something concrete to think about when we're talking about loving one another. The first one he mentions is we could just stop on right away. But he just says this. When I make a mistake and don't love someone well, as a Christian, I apologize for that. <laughs> I actually say I'm sorry. Christians say I'm sorry when we don't love each other well. We own up to it. We recognize it. I bit your head off. I'm sorry. That was not a loving thing to do. I didn't get back to you. I didn't walk through that hard time with you very well. I'm, I'm so sorry. I love you, and I didn't show you that love in the moment. Would you forgive me? Christians are full of I'm sorry's <laughs> because we offend each other. We just do. Even if you don't know for sure if you did, we still want to go to that person just make sure. I just want to make sure that I, that I hurt you in some way. I'm so sorry. I did not love you well. That's a mark of a true believer. That's the mark of a humble, loving Christian. It's, a, it's just someone who says, I'm sorry. If you think that that's easy, you probably haven't done it a whole lot. It's easy to say I'm sorry for little things. Little things that hardly even need an apology can actually be sort of a form of making us feel better about ourselves. But when we say I'm sorry for something, we, when we really did hurt somebody, when we really did act out of line and not very loving— it's, it's hard. You have to swallow your pride because half the time you had a reason for it. You had a good reason. That person had it coming, you know? And it's hard to lay that down in the moment. But as humble Christians, we, we do. We just do it. That's a mark of a Christian love. Related to that is, is that we're a forgiving people. We love each other. Our love is, is demonstrated in that we don't, we don't hold grudges. <laughs> We're either quick to forgive or we work hard to forgive, right? I mean, we are committed to forgiveness. It may come harder for for some people for some offenses, but it doesn't mean we're not working at it. Just to be a forgiving person, knowing you've been wronged in some way. It's the mark of a Christian. Christian. We, We live in the freedom that forgiveness brings. And that really does take the Holy Spirit when, when it's a— significant offense, doesn't it? I mean, when, it really, when you've really been wronged, 
you can't forgive just in your own strength. You really need Jesus. You really need the Holy Spirit to, to give you forgiveness for somebody. But that is something we do. Last one real quick. When we disagree, our oneness in Christ is our greatest priority when we disagree. Meaning, I don't, winning the argument, if we don't see things eye to eye, winning the argument is not the ultimate aim. That's not the ultimate goal for me. Hopefully it's not the ultimate goal for you. Our ultimate goal is that our oneness in Christ is not diminished. It's still on display. There's still this, this bond that we have. So even when we disagree, even when there's tension, man, God can be glorified in that because we can say, I don't agree, but, we're, but, but it's not something that, you know, of course we, can dis- we should disagree on some things. If I'm up here saying something heretical and horrible and wrong, then that's different. I'm talking about all the other different little things we disagree in that we don't have to break fellowship over. That we can still, like, hang on to our oneness and say, we're one. We're your brother. You're a sister. This matters. It's a mark of Christian love. It's not a cop-out at all to say that, that our participation with the Spirit is that we love really, really well because it's full of risk, pain, disappointment, rejection. It is a true giving of yourself if you're going to love people well. And I would just say, I think John's getting at something like that. I think Jesus is connecting these things a bit. So how else, does the, uh, how else does the Spirit continue the work of Jesus? If the Spirit brings the conviction, what else does the Spirit do? If you look at verse 12, um, read 12 to 15 here, he says this. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I think what the Spirit gives us is what what Jesus is saying. He he gives us the New Testament. The Spirit is giving us this right here. Clearly Jesus has more he wants to say, but he can't tell them yet. They don't have the Spirit. They, They can't really comprehend it. They can't understand it. But he assures his disciples that very soon... The Spirit will come, and what will He do? He will, he, will, he will guide you into understanding. If you went back to chapter 14, He actually says He will cause them to remember His words. What did they do as the Spirit gave them understanding and caused them to remember Jesus' words? Well, they, they wrote it down. <laughs> they started writing it all down. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the epistles. This is the Spirit's work, which means what we're holding in our hands is a work of the Spirit. And it's all pointing to Jesus. It's what the Spirit does. He points us to Jesus and he, and he, he causes his disciples to, to supernaturally remember. You can't remember all that stuff for over three years of time. How do, how, how do you do that? Well, the Spirit came and caused them to remember and gave them understanding so that when they recorded this New Testament, what we have here is the Spirit's work, ultimately. One writer said it this way, Scripture 
Scripture is like a working museum of which the Spirit is the curator, showing us around and explaining the wonders of the mind of the Maker. The Spirit wrote it, and then when we read it, if your faith is in Christ and the Spirit is living inside of you, He's testifying all the time, saying, keep reading, this is good, this is right, this is true. And, and, and helping us really to understand, to, to understand what it is that we're even reading. Not to say it's not a lot of work, not to say it's not like confusing at times, but, but uh, that's kind of why we have a community of people too that we read Scripture with together. This is the work of the Spirit. So we've got to be reading this. <laughs> to not read it is to neglect a gift, a huge gift of the Spirit. So we want to get in this. And this is a bit comforting for us, isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, it causes sometimes a little bit of angst in people. Because sometimes, I don't know what your past experiences have been like, but I know when you start talking about the Spirit, sometimes people go real far with that and really get some funny ideas about the Spirit and, and then... Or just funny ideas, period, and then just chalk it up to the Spirit told me this, or is doing this, or doing that. And I think the Spirit does, like, actively, like, work in us and speak and lead us into things and relationships and all that stuff. But it's funny how you know, sometimes you encounter someone and like, I don't know, really? Did the Spirit, was that the Spirit for sure? You sure about that? And so there, it can cause a little bit of anxiety, I think, sometimes when you, when you start talking too much about, about the Spirit. But it's very comforting to know, and I'll just, uh, <laughs> my personal history, my story, uh, the first 18 years of my life, I, I grew up in charismatic Pentecostal churches. And so you can't live for 18 years in charismatic churches and not see some funny stuff go on, go happen from time to time. If you have kind of a churchy experience and you know kind of what I'm talking about there, Funny things happen sometimes when people are getting overzealous about, like, trying to feel and experience the Spirit. You've got people laying on the floor and making funny noises and, and uh, saying, Thus saith the Lord, followed by who knows what that was. And, and that kind of stuff kind of sorts, starts to happen. And, and uh, that just happened quite a bit. Not all the time. Lots of good things happen too, but... But there was an overzealousness and then kind of an abandoning of God's word a little bit too. Of like not checking things with, with God's word. Not looking for consistency between what we're calling the spirit and what we know of the spirit here in the word. And a lot of times things devolved into disunity, kind of chaos, and just weird stuff. <laughs> so you got that side of the pendulum and you got another side of the pendulum where you get a bunch of Baptists like us together in the room who are going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and somehow we only end up talking about the Bible. Like, let's talk about the Spirit, and then it just, nope, actually, this is all we are comfortable talking about is the Bible. And uh, Brett said it, and I've heard it from other people as well, um, that for, for, for some of us Baptist-type people or other denominations, I don't know, the Trinity functionally is really more like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. Because, <laughs> because we're nervous about the Spirit. We don't know exactly what to think. And we don't want to stay there. We want to get to know the Holy Spirit. 
Our natural tendency is to treat him a little bit like a a family member who keeps showing up at family reunions, but nobody remembers how he's related anymore. He comes to both sides of the family reunions and eats a bunch of food, but we don't know his name and we can't remember who he is exactly. But there he is again. Let's get to know the Spirit. Let's get to know the Spirit with, with our Bibles open. I mean, let's, we're not abandoning anything here, but there is... He's alive. He, he lives in you. He's speaking. He's actually working. And, and there's, more to, there, there's more to it, I think, than we realize. I think there's more that the Spirit is doing than we realize. I don't want to go too far into saying what that is. I just, I just know we neglect, we neglect the Spirit a lot of times. And so we want to grow in that. So we, uh, yeah, we thank God for the Spirit's work in producing Scripture. It's, a, it's an anchor for us. It helps us. It guides us. It leads us. We want to go there and want to recognize, but the Spirit is active right here, right now. So that's the direction we'll be going. Let's pray. Well, Holy Spirit, we do recognize that you are here with us this morning. That when we put our faith in you, you come and you take up residence in us in a way that for thousands of years Israel longed for. And here you are living inside of us, working in us. Silently, many way, in many ways, you, you work silently. We don't realize what you're doing. But that doesn't mean you're always working silently, God. You are speaking. You are leading. You are guiding us. You, you give ideas. You strengthen our faith. You give us boldness when we need it. And so, Lord, help us to be attentive to your Spirit. Help us to listen to you. Help us to learn how to quiet our souls enough to recognize what it is you're, you're doing in us. And then to respond to you in obedience and trust. And we just need you for that, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that the work that you began in Jesus has not stopped. It's not less intense now in any way actively being carried out by the Spirit, and we get the delight, the joy, the privilege of joining the Spirit in that effort of carrying your name, testifying of your grace in this world to one another, to those who are lost. It's an honor, it's a joy, it's a privilege. Please help us in all of this, Jesus. And we know that you will. We know that you are. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.